welcome to the Sydney Uni EU podcast. Today's talk is from One Corinthians 1 to 4 and was given by Rowan Kemp. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. A special welcome to you if you're in first year. Just give, give me a wave if you're just starting uni this week. Well done. You made it despite the trains, despite the rain, despite the masks and everything. Well done. You've made it here. We're going to be thinking today about this particular topic, how to wreck the church. Now, I don't know if you've got a megalomaniac sort of streak, whether you've ever thought, how would you bring down the global church? How would you do it in one sort of one fell swoop? But this is your opportunity to, um, I shouldn't encourage you to indulge that particular streak you might have, but you know, just for the sake of the exercise, if you were going to try to wreck the church, destroy it, how would you do it? What might be an effective way to wreck the church? Why don't you have a chat to the person next to you or someone row in front, row behind, share some ideas. Of course, you're not gonna put it into action, I hope, but you know, how, how would you bring down the church? Have a little chat to the person next to you, see what you can come up with. Okay, maybe you've had a little chat to the person next to you. I'd be interested in just hearing a few responses. Uh, we're gonna do this a couple of times uh, when we meet together. Just get some responses back from you. So have a go, throw out your ideas. Let's sort of share them together. You might wanna just unmask when you share your ideas just so everybody, including me, can hear nice and clearly. But just some ideas. If you were going to try to bring down the church, if you're gonna wreck the church, how would you go about doing it? Any suggestions, any thoughts? Yeah, up the back. Yep, yep, yeah, you. Yeah, uh, I think if you gave the church, like, Thank you. What, a, what an interesting insight that power corrupts. We sort of know that, and implicit in that whole sort of su suggestion there is that the church is no different to anyone else. That is, if you gave the church real political power, it would pretty quickly probably end up destroying itself. And maybe that's actually what happened in, um, through Constantine back in the 300s, yeah, that's a really, really interesting idea. Maybe, maybe we don't want the church to have power, but wouldn't that be good if the church had some sort of power? That's an interesting question there to explore, yeah. Anyone else a thought of how might you wreck the church? Time for another suggestion. Yeah, down the front. Um, get enough people not to turn up this just make it so that people don't show up. If no one shows up, it's probably not gonna happen. I mean, and in fact, there are plenty of governments around the world that are actually following that particular strategy. By persecuting Christians, by actually stopping the meeting together, by making it actually the rest of their life very difficult if they identify as a Christian or if they, they, they stop meeting together. In fact, that's been a constant throughout the history of the Christian church go way back. You can find it in the Bible itself, in the New Testament. When the writer to the Hebrews has to say to the Christians, don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, why were they giving up meeting together? Because the, the authorities were persecuting Christians, and so it was better to actually keep Christianity as something, a private thing, you never actually met with other Christians. So yeah, persecution, that would be a good way to wreck the church. And there's lots of other things. I mean, you might just think, actually, the, we don't have to invent ways. The church has been pretty good at wrecking itself. If you can think about all of the abuse that has happened 
in so-called Christian communities. I mean, hasn't the church pretty much wrecked its own reputation without trying very hard and by doing terrible things to people and supposedly as followers of Jesus? It's just horrific. How would you, how would you wreck the church? What we're going to see today from this particular part of God's word, from the, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that one way that you can definitely wreck the church is by walking worldly values into the church community. As soon as the Christian community adopts worldly values, worldly ideas, worldly priorities, it will it'll wreck God's church. That's a big theme right throughout this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians. You find in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. That is a constant theme right throughout the letter. And so what I'm going to do today as we start looking at this letter of 1 Corinthians is I'm just trying to show you that idea where that idea sort of starts to appear in this particular letter. Our plan this year in EU public meetings is we'll spend half of all the public meetings looking at this particular letter. We want to do a deep dive into 1 Corinthians across the course of the year. But we'll only do half the year because, you know, we're YouTube generation. We just need to constant, you know, new ideas. So we, we have to intersperse that with a whole bunch of other stuff from the Bible as well. So we'll do in sort of four sections we'll look at the book of 1 Corinthians across, across the year. We're going to start today by trying to identify this key thing, and I want to show that to you in the letter itself. Um, so just if you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful maybe to open it up to the letter of 1 Corinthians or call it up on your phone. If you're not used to sort of looking at the Bible on your phone, you can go to a place called BibleGateway.com, BibleGateway.com, and it's got copies of the New Testament there. Look up 1 Corinthians and you can get it on your phone. Let's have a little bit, bit of a think about this. Let me just show you the very first, or you can call it up on your phone or in your Bible there, how Paul the Apostle starts this particular letter. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. So just to sort of orientate ourselves a little bit to this particular letter that we're going to do this dive into this year, let's just think about those two things. First of all, Corinth, where, where is this? Where is Corinth? What, what time are we talking about? And secondly, what's the, what's the church of God? What does Paul mean by that? So first of all, Corinth, Corinth is a real place. Uh, it's this little bit of land, this is the city of Corinth, is in this little bit of land that joins southern Greece to northern Greece. So this is a very key little bit of land. In fact, one of the ancient geographers, sorry, one of the geographers of the ancient world, he, so not, not a modern writer, an ancient writer, suggested that the reason that the ancient city of Corinth was so wealthy was because of its strategic location, sitting here between northern Greece and southern Greece. In fact, if uh, people wanted to get from this side, from the east side, all the way around to the west side, um, because travelling around down the bottom of Greece could be quite treacherous, they actually, I find this hard to believe, this is, a, this is nine k's across here, right? Nine, nine kilometres. They built a road so that they could drag your ship across the nine k's because it was, it was, quote, easier to go drag your boat across the land for nine kilometres than to sail down around the south, right? But this so just shows that this was a sort of a, a key hub for trade, which is why it was a very, very wealthy place. Not only that, it was a Roman city, so it was the capital of this whole region of the Roman Empire, the area of Achaia. 
Um, so the sort of the Roman governor was there in Corinth. So it's it's a wealthy city. It's a centre of government. It's an important city. Uh, it was also a very religious city. Um, this is a if you go to Corinth, you go to this area today. This is what you'll see. I mean, these are the ruins of the ancient city of Corinth. So this is the, the ruins of the city to which the Apostle Paul writes this very letter. And you can see here the ruins of a temple, temple to Apollo, just one of the temples in the area. This is, this is a key city, a wealthy city, a Roman city, a religious city. So it's a pretty key place. So that's a little bit about Corinth. And some of the, some of the, some of the culture of Corinth is going to be really, really important as we try to understand this letter that Paul writes to them. Because turns out the Apostle Paul, he was writing to people he knew. He'd spent quite a long time in Corinth. In fact, 18 months. He spent a year and a half. Now, the Apostle Paul, great church planter of the ancient world, travelled right around the Mediterranean, establishing churches as he preached the good news about Jesus Christ. When he got to Corinth, he spent a whole 18 months there. How do we know that? Well, you know it because if you maybe on the bus or train home today or when you're standing at the station waiting for that train eventually to turn up, you could read Acts 18. It's a great story. It gives you an account of how this church in Corinth was established. Uh, when you read it, you'll, uh, I'll sort of point out some of the key, key things about this. Um, the church that he established there, when he arrived in Corinth on his so-called second big missionary church planning journey, First thing he did, according to Acts 18, was he went to the Jewish synagogue, which that was his standard practice. He would go to the Jewish synagogue first and he announced to them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. But when the Jews got sick of listening to Paul and started abusing him, as often happened, then he went to the non-Jews. He went to the Gentiles, that is, those who were worshipping different gods in the city, including, say, at the Temple of Apollo. And what we learn in Acts chapter 18 is that as Paul announces this good news about the Lord Jesus, people become Christians. You know that happens. When people hear the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, people actually do become Christian. Not everyone, but people do. I mean, sometimes we can think our culture is so against the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ that we can think if I tell it to somebody, they're just, there's no... You know that if you share just that, the truth about Jesus, they might become a, they might become a Christian. It actually happens. I mean, it's happened to you, if you're a Christian person. It could well happen to the people you're going to meet this year in class. It could happen to the person who you, you chat to on the, on the way back to the station. Don't, don't assume that the good news about Jesus is powerless in people's lives. It's not. It's the power of God, as we'll see next week. Anyway, Paul announces the good news about Jesus. People become Christians. And we're told, that, um, we're told in Acts 18 that many of the Corinthians who heard the Apostle Paul were believe, uh, believed and were baptised. Some of the Jews turned to Jesus as the Christ, but it does seem from Acts 18 that most of the believers probably came from a Gentile background, a non-Jewish background. They switched from worshipping at the Temple of Apollo to worshipping Jesus as Lord. And that switch is going to be important as we read on in the letter. So Paul then stayed at Corinth for 18 months, teaching them the word of God to this baby church that he'd sort of founded under God. And no doubt, Paul was, was a very effective church planter. He planted churches all around the Mediterranean. Though relevant for us is the fact that, it, surprisingly, it doesn't seem that Paul was a very effective speaker. He was not impressive. 
despite all of this church planning activity. In particular, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he says this, They say, his opponents, they say about me, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. That is, Paul is not impressive by any of the rhetorical standards of the day. He was not an impressive speaker. He wasn't the speaker you listened to and thought, oh, wow, I've got to come back because he just, that was, he just, he didn't match up to the public speaking standards of the day. Anyway, Paul's there for 18 months, planting and growing this church. Then Paul moves on. And then it turns out that's when a guy by the name of Apollo, sorry, Apollos came along. Acts chapter 18 describes Apollos as a very learned Christian. He had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures and also he spoke with great fervor and boldness. We're told that Apollos traveled around and was a great help to the believers in the area because he would vigorously refute the Jews in public debate, prove from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And it seems that Apollos was very impressive in the speaking and teaching stakes. And whilst Apollos was clearly helpful to the Corinthian believers, inadvertently actually, his very strength caused some problems. Namely, and this brings us to the very first issue that you, you, you encounter as you read this letter that Paul has to address. The problem in Corinth was that they were a fractured and factional community. So if you've got your Bible there, let's have a bit of a look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Kephas, that's Peter, another apostle, or I belong to Christ. So the Corinthian church was splitting itself over their favourite Christian leader. I'm, I'm for Paul. He started this church. Oh, no, no, I'm for Apollos. He's, he's just awesome. Did you hear him in the synagogue? It was amazing. And then others. Now, by making these personal allegiances, what they were doing was they were breaking the church, which should be unified, breaking the church into factions. Now, I'm not sure whether there actually was a Kephas or a Peter group or whether there was a Christ group, because neither of those two are mentioned again in the letter. It's possible that Paul is actually trying to show them how ridiculous this factionalism is. Because you can imagine sitting there, right? You're, you're in the Corinthian church, you're sitting there. This letter arrives from the Apostle Paul, who planted the church. Oh, great, read it out for us, read it out. You read him out. Some of you are saying, I follow Paul. And you're going, yeah, well, I mean, that's me. I follow Paul. I mean, I'm in the Paul crew. Some follow, I follow Apollos. Well, that's those guys over there. I don't know why they're on about Apollos. Paul's so great. Some are saying, I follow Kephas. I don't know if anyone's following Kephas here. Some are saying, I follow Christ. Well, there's no one following Christ here. Well, actually, that's a problem, isn't it? If no one's following Christ. Like, just wonder whether, actually, he's using a little bit of rhetoric there to sort of expose to them just how crazy this factionalism is. Because then he ramps it up in the very next verse, verse 13. He says, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? That is his message here, which we're going to come back to later, is Jesus has to be central, right? Don't take your eyes off Jesus and put them onto human leaders. We're going to come back to that in a few weeks' time. So this is the first problem that Paul addresses. Their factionalism. 
And as you read through these first four chapters, you get a picture of how this factionalism is playing out among them. There's divisions and quarrels. They're fighting over each other. There's jealousy. They're puffed up and arrogant, he says, over each other. They're boasting in their human leaders. But what Paul then does, having identified the issue, the factionalism, he then provides a more penetrating critique of what's actually creating that factionalism. Um, every year I have to go for skin checks. It's because, look at, look at my skin. I mean, I clearly should not be living in Australia, right? The sunburned country. Like, I, I, I should be living in some country where the sun never shines and I live just under dark clouds all the time. Not because of my sunny disposition, just because of my whitey skin, right? But as a result of living too long in a lovely sunny country, I have many skin cancer problems. And so I have to go to the doctor every year and he says, here we go, and he pulls out the scalpel and he says, lie still, and then and away we go. He cuts out my skin cancers, right? Now, I don't mean to gross you out by that. The point, the point is, I think what Paul is doing here is he's identified a skin blemish, right? He's identified a problem on the surface of their community, the factionalism. And what he's now going to do is he's going to cut into that and identify what's really causing it underneath. And it happens at at least two layers. So the first layer, when he cuts in, as we follow his incision, if you like, the first layer is, you guys have misunderstood wisdom. See, in the first century, when Paul's writing this letter, you would often come across, this sounds weird, but you would come across itinerant philosophers. Yes, if you were a philosopher, which just means lover of wisdom, you, you could make a living. That's, that's bizarre, I know. Philosophy can get you a job. In fact, you could be an itinerant philosopher. You could be really, really esteemed in the culture. How? You turn up to a place and you say to them, I am Sam, the philosopher. And I, I, have, I have shared my wisdom before so-and-so of so-and-so. And I learnt my wisdom at the, at the knees of so-and-so and so-and-so. And I've been here and I've been there and I've got all of these great accolades. And now let me demonstrate to you my great wisdom. And the way you would do that would be give impressive speeches, rhetorical flair. The mark of true wisdom in their culture wasn't a PhD after your name. The mark of true wisdom wasn't university degrees. The mark of true wisdom was rhetorical flair, your rhetorical ability. That showed you were truly wise. And if you did that, people would pay money to listen to you pontificate. Every arts graduate could have a job. Just, just blah, 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 blah. Here's the money. Just keep blah, 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 blah. What a great world that would be. Anyway, the, Paul's point is this. You Corinthian Christians... You've taken hold of a lie from your culture and walked it into the church. You've kept your culture's value of what real wisdom looks like and you've walked that into the church and now you're applying that to your Christian leaders. Apollos, he's heaps wiser than Paul. Look at his great rhetorical ability. And this is the problem. This is their, his first analysis. You get a bit of a feel for this. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, he says, Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you're wise in this age, you should become fools so that you might become wise. For the wisdom of this world, 
right, that rhetorical flair, is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Paul is encouraging them to abandon this worldly set of values regarding what's wise and instead take on God's wisdom where their attention will be focused by Paul onto Jesus' death on the cross. Because that, he says, is where God's wisdom is truly displayed. A wisdom that doesn't make sense in the world, but actually is salvation and wisdom for those who understand it. Now, we're going to speak a lot more about that, what wisdom looks like next week. And that would actually just, by the way, would be a great week to invite friends along. People who you meet in class this week, next week, or just people you know from school, if you think that in any way they might be interested in hearing something about the Lord Jesus with respect to wisdom and being at university, then next week what we're going to do is we're going to dive in and talk about how do you get real wisdom, according to the Bible. What does real wisdom look like? And that's what we're going to dig into next week. So maybe invite a friend. It'd be a great week to bring them along. So why have these Corinthians got caught up in factionalism? Answer, they've walked this value about what wisdom looks like into the church and are now applying it to their Christian leaders. A few years ago, an international student was over at my place with a bunch of other students. And uh, she very quietly, when other people were out, out of earshot, she said to me, how come you don't take your shoes off when you come into the house? She walked into our house. I think, I think mine was the, the first um, first. Australian family home that she'd been in and she was really surprised that we all just left our shoes on um, and, and you know when I when you stop to think about it it's, it's a very reasonable question why do we leave our shoes on I mean think about all the stuff you're going to walk through today right just think about all of that rain and the stuff washing down the streets and and then we're going to go home and if you're not in the habit of taking your shoes off the door we're just going to walk it into our house and why are we walking all that stuff, all that rubbish, right through our house? It's hardly very hygienic. And that's, that's the Corinthian church's problem. They're walking all of this worldliness into God's house when they should be leaving it at the door. And as a result of bringing the rubbish into the house, they're now fighting with each other. If they just left the worldly understanding at the door, then they wouldn't be having this fight. So it makes, makes me think a bit, and I want to encourage you to think a little bit now, what, what, worldly, um, what worldly ideas or values or practices might we be walking into God's church? Now, I don't know if you're a Christian person. I don't know if you're following the Lord Jesus. Uh, everyone is welcome to the EU public meetings. And I don't know about how much experience you've had a Christian community. At the very least, you're here today. So you experience something of Christian community. But whatever experience you've had, whether it's a lot or a little, It'd be just interesting to have a little chat with the people around you, just for a few minutes. What worldly ideas or values or practices do you think we're in danger of walking into church community? What have you seen? What have you experienced? Have a chat to the people next to you. I'll give you a couple of minutes. I'd be keen to hear just a couple of suggestions from you, maybe, maybe two suggestions. What ideas, values or practices might we be walking into God's church? Do you have any ideas? Maybe just take your mask off and share something. Yeah. 
cancel culture. Yeah. Do you want to speak more about that? No? Okay. Thank you, yeah, that's great, thank you. And I, I love how you put that together, trying to think about, well, what does it mean to be Christian community? It's meant to be a place of redemption and forgiveness. And yet when we hear what certain people have done, and they turn up to church, we feel very much like our culture that says, no way, no way, that's not forgivable. We can't, there's no, there is no redemption for you. That's really, thank you, that's really, really helpful. That's a great example. It's, when, I don't know for you, but when you hear that, you sort of go, oh, yeah, that's right. It's sort, of, it's sort of obvious once it's said, but it's not obvious even though it's happening all the time. And that's because the reality is to really understand your own culture, it's a very difficult task to understand your own culture. That's why it's so good that in the EU we have many international students because when they come, they can see what's actually going on in our culture. But if you've just been living in this culture, swimming around in this culture forever, you don't necessarily see it. It's like trying to see your own glasses, right? If I try to see my own glasses, in fact, I, f I forget often that I've even got them on. I'm just seeing through them all the time. And that's, that's my culture, that's your culture. It's so hard to see it. And that's where we are a blessing to one another, right? Because actually, you help me understand my own cultural perspective and hopefully I can help you. But yeah, so thank you, that's really helpful. That was a great suggestion. Any other, it may not be as profound or deep or just anything you thought of, might be we're obsessed with lighting. And that's true, we are. We're obsessed with lighting and that's our culture too, yeah. Yes, thank you. All sorts of values of our culture about you know, what, it, what it means to just be sensible. Not even to be rich, just to be sensible. It's sensible living, common sense, just means that you need to get into the property market and secure your own place because renting is dumb. All right, that's in the Bible, is it? Right. No, but my, but my, but my parents who are Christians, they, they've told me renting is silly. So it's in the Bible? There's just all sorts of cultural things that we adopt and, and even baptise as sort of Christian when actually are they? I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's wrong to own a house. What I'm saying is how do, we, how do we determine what's worldly values and what's godly values? And the answer at the end of the day is we have to measure it against God's word. We have to measure it against the Bible. But because it's so hard to identify the culture, our own cultural glasses, I need you and you need me as we read the Bible together to be pointing that out to one another. Thank you, that's really just helpful. And so Paul has identified they've walked a particular value about what wisdom looks like. And as we read through the letter, we're going to see they've, they've walked a lot of worldly values into their church. What constitutes effective leadership? Uh, what's an appropriate expression of sex in relationships? What's truly impressive worship look like? They've worked, w walked worldly values in all of these different things. So it's going to be a really interesting read as we get through 1 Corinthians, as we start to, because it'll make us think about, well, what, what have we walked in, actually? But then Paul does cut, and I'm going to finish with this, Paul cuts a little bit deeper. He cuts a little bit deeper. It's not just that they've walked some worldly values in. Why have they walked worldly values in to the church? His analysis is actually at root 
you are immature worldly believers. They are Christians, they're believers, they're followers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually says some really positive things about the church in chapter 1, which I'll leave you to read. But he says, you're immature. You're, you're, you're worldly in your values, in your thinking. Uh, you need to grow up. So if you have a look with me at the passage we just had read, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, which Sam read out for us before. If you can open it up on your phone or just call it up there in your Bible. And I'll just remind you what he says. And so, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. They are babies in Christ. He said, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for solid food. And even now you are still not ready. His deeper critique is they haven't matured as Christians. He says, for you are still of the flesh or still worldly. For as long as there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human standards? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? You're fleshly. You're, you're, you're not behaving as you really are. This is the problem, the immature. So what's his solution? What's his solution to the fact that they're immature? Well, that was the other passage we had read for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. His solution is to go back and give them more baby food. You've got to go back to basics, people, to, if you're going to grow up in your faith. And what's the basics here? It's you need to remember who Jesus is and what he's done and how that changes you. If you're going to stop being an immature believer and you're going to stop just walking worldly values into the church, and you're going to stop factionalism and fighting. If you're going to stop all of those things, then you've got to start to understand Jesus deeper. And you've got to understand how he changes you. And that's what he does in chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. So as we come to an end, let me just... I'm going to read that passage again, but in a bit of an unusual way. He says, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of the J-man by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in the J-man, called to be saints, together with all of those in every place who call on the name of the J-man, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the J-man. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in the J-man. For in every way... You have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of the J-man has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of the J-man. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of the J-man. God is faithful and by him you are called into the fellowship of his son, the J-man. Now that's a pretty dumb way to read the Bible, right? But did you just notice, because if I just read it normally, that... Every time it just says Jesus, you go, oh yeah, it's the Bible. They're always talking. Yeah, it's always talking about Jesus. Do you hear how much he's just trying to refocus them on Jesus? And that's because Paul knows where he's going in this letter. Now, I don't know how you write essays, but I've, I've never been an art student, but I've heard that this art students, you, you, you know, look at a few things online and then go, oh, I've got two and a half thousand words and two hours to do it. No worries. And... Two thousand four hundred and twenty-four words. Submit. I'm. Where's my next coffee? You know that that is apparently the art student's life. That's what I've heard. That's just how it goes. And you don't know where that essay is going to end. You just start, and then it comes as you go. The flow, right? 
that's not how the Apostle Paul writes his letters. He doesn't just start and wonder where he's going. He knows exactly the issues he wants to address and he knows exactly what he wants to focus them on. Which is why he, right at the very outset, he is super clear on who Jesus is and how that transforms them. Because what does he say in verse 2? He says to the church of God that is in God, those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ. What does sanctified mean? It means to be made holy. Sometimes people think Christians are all about trying to be holy. Actually, the emphasis of the Bible is because you are a Christian, God has made you holy. He set you apart from everything else. He set you apart from the world. You see, they're walking worldly values in and he's saying, no, no, you're sanctified. You're holy. You've been set apart by God from the world. And he says there in the same verse, called to be saints, and which is, comes from the same root word, actually, is the word sanctified. Called to be holy ones. This is who God has made you to be. See, right at the very outset in the second sentence, he's identifying the key thing they need to know. You're not like the world. You put your faith in Jesus. You've now been made holy. That's going to be the solution to their problems. Now, what we're going to see as we go on through the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how this plays out in all sorts of different issues for them. And that's going to spark for us, hopefully, lots of different ways about how might we be walking worldly values into the church and how can we grasp more deeply our identity as holy ones, saints in Jesus Christ? They're the two questions I want to leave you with today. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.